day and welcome to another Forge Side Chat, a podcast about blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and everything in between, with a heavy focus on talent in the Great White North. Talking about Canada, eh? And today on the show, in your ears, I've got Gregory Reimer joining me out of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Gregory's a fairly new smith to the scene he's been dabbling with it for a while he's got a little bit of experience under his belt now and he's got a good idea of where he's going with things here so it's going to be a great talk to hear about what he's been doing in in his shop and how he's gotten there and all the ventures he's got under his belt already at this point and uh, where he's looking to go in the future before we get into that conversation though i'd like to tell you guys about one of our sponsors the twiller linseed oil the twiller linseed oil is processed, grown, processed, and manufactured right here in Canada out of Saskatchewan. And Detooler has a great opportunity for you guys to save a little bit of money when you put their product in into your hands. If you order $50 or more of their product, you can use the code FORGECHAT10 and save yourself 10% on your order. Dude, highly, again, as always, highly recommend the Flax Wax one liter of either boiled linseed oil or their cold pressed raw linseed oil amazing products coming from those guys and hey if you've got yourself a deck that needs to be refinished they've also got an amazing linseed deck finish that will really set you solid so go check out the boys over at detourlinseed.com and use that code forgechat10 to save yourself 10 percent. now on to gregory my man how are you doing sir pretty good how pretty good Right on, right on. Good. What have you been up to this week, bud? Uh, not much. Did the 48-hour dagger challenge. That was oh, not much. Something. Yeah, yeah, it's a little, that's a little, little something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you sleep? Um, yeah, I got a bit, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Uh, well, me and you chatted a little bit during the 48-hour challenge, so I, I have an idea of what you faced, the, the issues you faced there, but... Uh, want to tell me about your dagger at all? Like, what kind of dagger did you design for the project? Well, for me, what I I kind of wanted to get out of my comfort zone a bit since I'm more of an artist blacksmith, but I would I wanted to do something that was more out of my comfort zone, something that I haven't done in a while. So I thought I'd take this on for a challenge. It's a little bit of a hefty challenge to take on if you're not a regular everyday knife. Well, even an everyday, even if you're just not a regular knife maker per se, that's a hefty challenge to take on, man. Was it something that you know you have thoughts of going into in the future with playing with knives, or it's just kind of like it's one of those things? It's it's part of blacksmithing. For me, I wanted to become a big time knife maker, but seeing that I didn't have many people interested in it and then doing the same thing over and over and over again kind of got a bit boring for me so i'm more moved into artist blacksmithing because you can do so much with it and like it's just amazing what you can do make all these cool sculptures and every day it's something different like you still have the same things like making your same screw bolts and like your door knockers and everything, but it's still all different at the end of the day. Yeah. It's not spending 10 hours hand sanding that one blade <laughs> or doing 
cutting out 50 of those same blades or forging out 50 of the same blades and doing it all over again for the next day. Yeah, no, there's definitely a side to that with knife making that has me kind of looking at that whole game as being something that I don't have a strong interest in it. And for exactly the same thing that you say, like I I do want to make knives. I think knives are awesome. And there's an artistic side to making knives as well. But in the long run, the amount of monotonous time that goes into making a knife definitely draws me away from wanting to go that route. Oh, yeah, I know. Just about (laughs) just the amount of time that I probably spent into fitting the guard up to this blade probably was a good three to four hours. Just sitting there on a stool, taking tiny needle files and just filing that hole. You're making me th- I like I've done a little bit of work like that in my time. One of the ones that I'm thinking back to that kind of draws a nightmare for me is I had something like I think it was 64 motors that we had, electric drive motors of some sort. I can't remember what they were for, but the splines on them were just ever so slightly off and the gear piece that went into that spline wouldn't fit in because the tolerance was too tight. I had to take a file and file every tooth like a tenth a tenth of a thou off with a file. (laughs) And yeah, that was like two weeks worth of work every day for eight hours a day. And it was just like, oh my God, thank God for podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I I feel that monotonous pain, man. And there's there's a reason why I strive away from it. But at the same time, the artist blacksmith has scenarios about that that they've got to consider. For example, you get into making gates and railings and the amount of scrolls that you'll have to churn out can become extremely monotonous as well. So I've looked at that with the artist blacksmithing side of things. And it's like, I, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I love artist blacksmithing because it's something different all the time. But you have to be very careful not to pigeonhole yourself into a niche like making very um, basic railings, for example. You get, yeah. you'll get, yeah, you get your regular clients that that's all, that's all they want is just some scrolls and maybe some end caps type things or whatever going on and all those end cap type things, you don't bother forging them. Just order them as casting pieces because the amount of time it takes to forge it for just versus just ordering as a casting piece, the the money lost isn't, it just isn't worth it. The time saved versus the money lost, you might as well just order cast pieces, TIG weld them or MIG weld them to the top of your post and call it done versus trying to forge weld that out of a solid piece, right? Oh, yeah. So... I've I've looked into all that kind of stuff and it's drawn I used to want to do gates really bad dude like that was my that was where I was thinking I was going to go and then I started looking at that aspect and it was like okay hold on you don't want to get sucked into that monotonous game dude how do you avoid this and then I looked at guys like Paul Reimer or oh yeah oh shoot we interviewed this gentleman right off the hop, and I'm dropping his name. Uh, shoot, shoot, shoot! Out of Vancouver, well-known dude. That's a excellent uh, artist, blacksmith. Oh my god! 
can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now. He's like huge in the Canadian scene. Anyways, that's going to bug me that I can't remember his name. I look at the style of gates and fences he does. And I'm like, yes, that everyone is different and has this like crazy abstract artistic, like just love to it. And I oh man, that, that draws me right back into wanting doing gates and railings again, seeing that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Where did you kind of find your, your, your gusto to, decide to blacksmith man like where does that come from for you so it's a bit of a story so like the first couple years were actually being a knife maker so what happened is the first a cousin of mine showed me this video i and i already knew about forge and fire but i didn't find it that interesting but then he showed me this alec steel video of making this chris i don't know if you ever saw the video of him making the chris Probably the yeah. Chris Dagger, and after that's, seeing that, how beautiful that was, I—that's what got me into doing. You could say that's kind of what kickstarted the whole process of this. And then nice. after that, that's what I wanted to do: knife making. But then, I don't know. Like, you could say, just trying to think of a way how to say it, but like, business w- has not always been the best. Like, very slow for me, and I found it was not very good. So I kind of. And being, again, very monotonous and the same. So what I decided is then to do something that really found interesting. And that was artist blacksmithing. And that's because for the first three, I'm trying to think, for the first like five, five or four, like five or so years, I was um, doing it all by myself, learning all by myself. I had basically the bare essentials of nothing, you could say. I got my own homemade forge and kind of that just burned through a 20 pound propane tank and like nothing. It was that bad. (laughs) And so then I, as a day job or like a job that I would do is work at a, I still do to this day is work at a gas bar. So like that, I working one day, then this one day guy comes with like a Lear truck cap and a white truck with an anvil hat on. And I talk, and I got his gas, and I was like, hey, are you by any chance a blacksmith? And he's like, um, no, I'm a farrier. So, and he's like, why? Because I saw your hat. And then basically like that, and I asked, like, because I need, I just wondering, because I need some nails for a project like that to make, because I was kind of dabbling in the more blacksmithing stuff at that moment when mm-hmm. I met him. And then basically we started talk. He invited me to his place to get some nails and such. And then after that, what happened? Just trying to think. Oh, yeah. After that, then I got nails and, yeah, got got each other's phone numbers. And basically, he then one evening let me come to his place to forge and he kind of showed me some stuff. And actually, he's been teaching me for the last year. So basically, I've been taught by a farrier, you could say. And really, I think farriers are really good at what they do i'd have to say for forging yeah. they really know how to move metal <laughs> they know their shit dude for sure oh, they do yeah do you yeah, want to drop a, a name, name on that um, guy harry, harry mattis harry nice. harry mattis taught by Stuart lambert cool right on that's awesome then if i'm right he was also he was also taught by jonathan green jonathan okay. green okay that's so like that not names i'm familiar with unfortunately but because yeah they're all part of the farrier uh, side of it 
right? Right. That's something that I'm not very familiar with whatsoever is the farrier side of things, man. I think it's awesome, but I just don't have a lot of knowledge on it whatsoever. Yeah. So why, you know, you had the, an, or the, the forge, sorry, that you made yourself. What about an anvil? What was your first anvil? Railroad track. <laughs> uh, well, actually, it was kind of funny. Actually, before the railroad track was actually just this massive block of pitted steel. No joke. Yeah. Just this massive block of pitted steel. That was just like, because it came from my dad's press. So it's kind of funny because every time he wasn't using the big press, I'd just take the block and I'd just sneak it away so then I can go use it for a little bit. And then when he's doing it, then he just go grab it and then just go put it by the press again. <laughs> Yeah, I'd steal it to use it, and then I just he just I'd use it for the forge, and then he would then just take it back to use it to the press when he needed it. But yeah, actually, I had now that I think of it, I actually had two forges before the nice forge that I have now. The first one was my dad's and my attempt at thinking that a forge didn't need insulation to work. Uh... Like that. so we took a literal wood stove and just put burners in it. That was literally my idea, and then we were all like, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And I was like, what could we use for homemade insulation? So I was like, oh, clay works. So just the whole thing was like packed with like an inch thick of clay. That no worked way. slightly, that just didn't yeah. work. So then we were just like, okay, we got to try something else. So then his boss, like that, he works for a grain company. They got like these this million-dollar laser cutter. So she oh, got him just a laser cut and like take and break press this box just like and anyways yeah. like that so we welded this box together and to make to look like a forge so then what we did is we filled it with so many years ago when i was like six we did like um a science project for you know that um i forget the name of that dude but he like he was a guy that killed died on a cliff or something like that for a parachuting but he did the king of random king of random that dude okay he then I remember he did, made a video about melting pop cans like that. And we were like, oh, let's yeah. try that. So like that, so we took the same idea that he did and put it in the forge. So basically, this huge forge was filled up with basically a couple bricks that we could salvage from a fi the fireplace. And then it was just filled up to the brim with um, sand and play sand and plaster of Paris all plaster mixed together. Yeah. With homemade <laughs> insulation. <laughs> I tell Crazy. you, that thing was so heavy. That uh -huh. that brick, that brick that was probably like at least two feet wide and like no, like no, like a foot, like a foot or so wide and like two feet tall. That thing probably weighed the brick itself probably weighed like four hundred pounds. <laughs> Trying to move that thing was impossible. Oh jeez, eh? Crazy. Yeah. So then well, you got to start somewhere, right? Oh yeah. I mean, if you and if you don't just buy something from the store, that's that's essentially what you fall into is just playing with what you got. Yeah. So eventually, you built another one, or? Uh no. So basically, I got. Um, it's not a brand new forge. It had two years of use by another farrier, like Stuart, not Stuart Lambert. No, it was Mark Wilson. Um, <laughs> I think it was Mark Wilson or one of them, and he like so like my. My mentor, like Harry Mattis, he has been yeah. the main reason that he bl he blows all my money for me, you could say. <laughs> and so he called like that. I'm working one day and he says, hey, man, I got 
hey man i've got a forge for you and he, i was like oh i like uh, like a company one he's like yeah it's an nc tool whisper mama and that's the main nc tools that you probably the most used forged by farriers every farrier pro- has owned probably nc tool which is north carolina tool company amazing right. company i have to say for making forges they're amazing Great. and so yeah he's like hey i got this it's years they only got like two years of use on it which is not a lot 700 no. bucks and i was like i'm taking it <laughs> Right on. Because those things actually brand new are like thirteen hundred bucks, brand new. Okay. Yeah. So really, how big is it? Ah, uh, approximately. It's meant for fair. It's meant for farriers, but um, I'd, I don't know without measurements, but like it would be around um two feet wide, like two feet wide, one feet. Yeah, no, two feet long, one like maybe six six inches or no not six inches i'd be way too small like maybe around eight inches wide and then like then it's got like a big door from the front because it's meant for farriers and like two doors in this on the side so yeah oh, it's cool. pretty yeah it's not too tall because it's meant for farriers again but right. you could say it's a perfect for bladesmithing and doing art, small artist blacksmithing it's actually what's got me by sure. for doing everything well have you ever played with coal at all Coal, actually, yes, I did. Um, so I don't haven't played with it much, but over the weekend, so I don't know if you know, but of the Freshermen's Reunion, have no. you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah, the yes, 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 down in Austin, right? Yes, that's yes. Well, I actually live a couple blocks from there, oh, from no the way. from the museum. Cool. So like that, and I contacted the I don't know, I forget Barry Brownlee, Barry Brownlee, and he was like. And he's the one that volunteers there, and he's been volunteering there for like probably I don't know like how many years, like probably like a hun- ten or like so a hundred, years. like a hundred. Just like that, and I contacted <laughs> him and said, "Hey, can I volunteer volunteer there with you?" And he's like, "Sure." It's like that, and they run nothing but coal. So basically, for that weekend, which was like from like Thursday, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, those four days, I got to run nothing but coal. So yeah, I have, I you could say I do have a tiny bit of experience using coal. Oh, that's that's ex- that's experience using coal for sure, man. If you used it even just once, as far as I'm concerned, I mean that opens your mind to how coal works and what what you can get with coal versus using a propane forge. Did yeah. You, did you find um, any sort of gravitation towards using coal? Like, do you find do you think you're going to want a coal forge in your shop? Um, I definitely want a coal forge in my shop because the one thing I loved about it is just doing. You could say. Sm- like if you want to isolate that one section for doing yeah. upsetting, it's so much nicer than having this propane forge that heats past the door almost. Yeah. So then you have this large section that you have to try to upset that's gonna twist and turn all over the place. But yeah. with a coal forge, just you just have to put it in just a tiny bit, heat it up, get a nice red and hot, just bam bam, just upsets that's, that's, that nice little piece. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so I, I feel the same way. I love coal for that exact reason is isolated heat. I also, I find that coal is a lot nicer for forge welding personally. I'm, I know it works fine in the propane forge. I just find that doing it with the coal forge is so much, I don't know, cooler, I guess. I don't know. It's whether or not it's better is maybe not the right way to put it, but it's just, seeing that steel get to that point where it starts sparkling and it's almost liquid state at that point that is so cool 
You don't oh, you don't definitely. see that in a, coal, or in a propane forge. You don't really get to see that ever. I've never seen steel get to that melting point, anyways, in a in a coal or a propane forge. Sorry. Yeah, but in a coal forge, when you start seeing it sparking, you can either be happy or sad. Because if that's a project that you didn't want it to spark, then you could start getting sad. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've I've had a, enough sad moments in my life in front of a coal forge, man. Thanks for reminding me. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a bit of the same. Just like working on, I was making just tiny, tiny quarter inch rod hearts just for fun there, just like yeah. that. And then I thought. Okay, I'm just going to quickly run over to one end of the shop just to quickly grab sun, come back, quickly run over, and oh no, it's sparking. Well, throw that away. Got to do it all over again. (laughs) Uh, At least it was just uh, something simple like that. It happened to me on on the last step of making a pair of tongs when I was at Cloverdale Forge doing the tong class there. And I got carried away talking to the guy next to me, and I look over. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. so let's go back to the big sorry go ahead no keep talking i want to go back to the beginnings of you again still or we're we're kind of on that but while we're on that what kind of tools did you start off with hammers tongs do you have Um, anything in that regard first starting tools like so basically and my dad kind of still teases this to me to this day is I watched an Alex Steele video on how, I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was like how to turn the $7 hammer into the, his acclaimed $200 hammer. That yep. video, that's his popular video. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to do that. So like that. So I, I took one of my dad's mechanics hammer, which was my first ever hammer. And then I just ground it to a round point, which was really nice, but still, yeah. Then he kind of teases that to me for this day. Like, hey, you still, you rocked my hammer. And I was like, okay, I bought you a new hammer. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks, dad. Yeah. So your then, dad works at a grain company. Like he's got all this stuff at home. What is, what is his jam? What is my dad's job? No, like, like what's, what keeps him busy with all this, all this tools that he's got at home. He's got the press you were saying and hammers and stuff oh sorry um because he is actually a um um grain truck like he drives semi-truck all day oh okay okay, well not all day like he still comes home at seven but still like when you need to repair a tire you need that you it's really nice to have that press to break the beat instead of sitting there for hours on end with a sledge oh and setting bearings having a press for bearings is like massive dude that's that's so that's like most machine shops have a press solely for that reason yeah the press is big it's like really big it's just the one problem is the one thing i really hate about it is that the it's made of the bed is i-beams with a solid metal bar but here's the thing the bottom i-beam is cracked a bit in the center so when you push down it flexes uh, it just flexes and i hate that and yeah. i've been needing to repair it like i've been needing That's... to fix that thing up really nice you and get that thing that solid it, yeah before it becomes a, a a little bit too bendy on you yeah no kidding <laughs> yeah crazy uh well the, the other thing i find with um shot presses like a normal shot press is they tend to be slow as f or if anything they're hand actuated which is just way too slow for most styles of forge welding uh or forging sorry 
you can still get away with doing a lot of stuff with one, but it's just production styles kind of lost when it comes to that. And that's why a lot of guys go to using a forging press is they want that production level, right? That speed, that finite yeah. control that you get with the, with a hydraulic press. You you still have amazing control using a, if you have a hand actuated uh, hydraulic press, you'll you'll still have great control with it, but that speed is lost. Yeah, well, the thing is, it is really fast and such, and it has power, but okay. most of that power is, like I said, taken out by that flexing. That flex is, So, yeah. if someone were to, like, if someone were to fix that flexing, which I plan to do probably soon, is fix that, and it would just be fine. But really, the amount of stuff I do that is smaller, I just take it all to my power hammer. Oh, you got a power hammer. That's 25-pound right. Western Giant nice that's what you were gonna sell that actually not that long ago and you decided to change your mind on that right yeah because i decided because i thought if i'm gonna be doing bigger stuff like what paul does like that then i kind of gonna need a power hammer <laughs> yeah uh you just dropped the name paul there who are you talking about man um awesome dude i i loved him i so i not applied but like I went there for a bit of a job application, so he invited me over for a week or so to go hang out in his shop. I was like, sure. So I took the trip up and um, just trying to think. Yeah, so I hung out with him. Awesome dude. And he actually, technically, I could still go and go there if I want, but see, being that's really, really far from home that I can't really see family, it's kind of yeah. hard. That's kind of why I want to try make doing a bit of what he does over here. Yeah. before i do that because then it would be a lot nicer just so that i can be with family and such sure. instead of being over 1300 kilometers away right so just to clarify we're talking about paul reimer in crownbrook british columbia right uh paul reimer yeah, yeah. in british columbia yeah and paul reimer is a very well-established artist blacksmith at this point and oh yes earlier last year uh paul reached out to me and said that he was interested in finding somebody new in his shop he's looking for apprentices and he asked me if i knew anybody and if i'm not mistaken i sent your name his way or i sent his name your way one of the or both and helped get you guys connected is that correct yes that is correct awesome dude stoked to hear that that actually panned out for you and that you you know you, you gained something from that that has been essentially my mission with the podcast is to help grow this community and to hear that man fucking solid dude so pumped to hear yeah that. yeah like actually i could probably still go back but like the main thing that he wants is for me to be kind of 18 and older so that he doesn't have to like oh maybe then help because him being a very busy guy with a couple like how many kids he has he doesn't want to be like oh greg has a flat on his car i probably should be since i have him out here from all the way here i should probably be helping Helping him him out yeah yeah so he kind of doesn't want to be taking that responsibility so he says like maybe just come back when you're a bit older and more like not responsible like more experienced at like life you could say oh for sure dude i totally get it i mean um no offense to anybody under the age of 18 that's still in school doing their thing, but oh yeah, blacksmithing isn't 
one of those things that you just, well, I mean, it is, I mean, look at some of the younger guys out there that have jumped into it, but it, it, it also depends on what you want out of life too. I mean, if you're willing to give it all and go into it at a young age, give up school and learn just blacksmithing, there's that option out there. But I mean, coming from my point of view, and I think Paul's got a similar point of view is there's a lot of growth that you get during the timeline that you're in right now around the age of 18 and that growth is so important to becoming who you are in life that you need to be setting yourself in in different places to have that growth and if you just give up everything and go into blacksmithing you're gonna miss a lot of that growth having those life experiences of having a girlfriend near home or being with your mom through through trying times or your dad through trying times or or your grandparents through trying times if you're 1300 kilometers away and that's happening at home you're not there for that getting those life experiences working with your dad doing like anything that he does in the shop is is also like so such a huge thing for you dude like I grew I didn't have much of a dad growing up both I, I grew up with a dad that took off when I was five and then, then my mom ended up remarrying later on in life and my stepdad was just I don't want to say useless because he he knew how to do stuff but could be could care less to show me how to do anything dude at that point in my life it would have been very beneficial for me to pack up my stuff and walk away and find somebody like Paul that could have taken me under his wing and been like Lyndon let me show you how this is done and you'll be a blacksmith for the rest of your life where you're at in life you've got a a strong family behind you you're in a good area of of Canada too for doing what you do being right next to Austin and having the museum there is great for connection purposes dealing with the farrier guys that you've got here is that's that sounds awesome dude that you've hooked up with guys like that man so like you're on a good path dude man like you made the right decision i think by deciding to stay at home versus trying to jump over with paul and and take on a whole new style of life that you're not really necessarily prepared for yet perhaps maybe as is, is, is what i'm seeing I, I might be looking at things through the wrong color of glass but that's that's what i've gathered from you man oh yeah and then so oh keep talking you just gonna say something yeah no uh working with paul dude i mean how long ago was that now um that was in the beginning of july no in the beginning of june okay then so i went there for it was supposed to be a two week but since my parents wanted to be there you could say my mom actually came up with me and then since they since one of my best friends actually lives in Wassa, which is like a 20 minute or so drive from yeah. Cranbrook there then basically she could just hang out with them for that week oh yeah cool so you stayed the, there for a week yeah cool right on then if i'm right instead of making that 20 minute drive then if i'm yeah then one of he he hooked me up with one of paul's friends like that that had like a sweet cabin that I was allowed to stay in for like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks for the whole week. Nice. nice. And it had like, it was, that was an awesome place. Near Paul's shop? Or was that in Wausau or near Paul? Um, 
Paul, Paul's shop, like, was like, that's where my best friend lives, is in Wausau, BC, right. which is, like, 20 minutes, or 20 or so minutes away from Cranbrook, and then, then you probably know where Paul lives, and then yeah. that cabin was, like, I don't know, a little, little ways up the road from where you would have driven. No way. Cool. Yeah. So, cool. it wasn't within biking distance. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, is that how you did it then? Is you brought a bike with you or? Uh, yeah, I brought like a mountain bike. <laughs> oh, dude, man. That sounds awesome. Uh, okay. And just for the record, do you mind saying how old you are? Or? Um, I'm 17 turning 18 in October 24th. Okay, cool. Right on, man. Good for you, buddy. Excited to be 18? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, trust me, man. It all goes downhill after that. So don't get yeah, too excited. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, well, I shouldn't no, say dude. I know, but. <laughs> well, yeah, right? You don't From know what I'm you hearing. Know. <laughs> no, dude, man. 18, honestly, those are the years, my man. Like, there's, there's so much that goes on during that time of your life around, say, 18 to, well, even now where you are. I'd say probably starting around 14 till the age of 30. You that's your development, man. Like that's where you find out you find out who you are, what it is you like, your quirks and stuff like that. You get that's when you meet your lifelong friends is during that timeline generally. A lot of people tend to meet their spouses during that timeline. You go through a lot of changes at that time of life, man, and it really sets in stone who you are. And, you know, I look back to those days with a lot of good memories, man, like a lot of good memories that I probably should have played my cards a little bit differently. And, you know, oddly enough, I was just talking to a friend of mine, maybe, I don't know, 40 minutes ago before we sat down to record this about the things we did when we were 20 versus what we're doing now. And if we could have only seen that that light at the end of the tunnel and had decided to do what we're doing now when we were 20. And it's just like, ah, but, you know, girls and, and bars and everything like that was so important back then. And, dude, if you invest in a house at your age and get yourself set, by the time you're my age, you'll be laughing versus struggling. And that's where there, there's regrets, of course, when I look back to those days. But yeah, man, I, I, I'm hoping that, well, I, I, I think I see it with you, dude. You're on the right path to, to a good life. You know, you're, you're pushing yourself. You're not worried about partying from the sounds of it. You're more worried about creating stuff. And I didn't have that when I was your age. So I'm excited for you, man. Like, I really am doing this venture with Paul at the age of 17, my man. That's awesome that you got that under your belt. So awesome. Thank you. I don't know if you know, I don't know if Paul has ever told you this, but did you know that he actually taught Timothy Dick or Dyke, however you want to say it? Like the the YouTuber, Timothy Dick. Yeah. He's actually, he's actually took Timothy Dick under his wing. I think, I think I did know that actually. I forgot. That's right. I he did tell me that. when I first when I was first talking to him, which was like which was through texting or like through the Instagram messenger, however you want to do it. Uh-huh. He was like, "Hey, do you know if this guy like Timothy Dick?" I was like, "No, not really," because like that. And then he was like, "I taught him." And I was like, "Oh." And then I now that I know about that, I like 
every time that he, re- Timothy releases a new video, I'm always like, I always watch it because I know, oh, that's so cool. And you can see the, the things from Paul actually come out from Timothy. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do see that. That's so crazy that you say that. Even demeanor, personal demeanor. There's, oh, a, yeah. little, there's a little bit of Paul in that, ju- in that dude, man, for sure. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. Paul's a, a solid dude too. Like I'm sure when you were there, you probably had some good conversations with him about just life in general and, and work and, and, you know, being a solid person. Right. Oh yeah. And his workers were pretty awesome as well. I'd say his shop is pretty awesome too. Right? Oh, yeah. Like what an awesome shop, dude. I'm when I saw that, I was just like, man, this, this is this is gold right here. Like this is what every blacksmith aspires to be is right here. Oh yeah. What was it? It's a 60 by 40 shop, something like that. He's got a big overhang on one side. His office is in, he's got his own office in there. And then he's got a little storage side off to the side as well that he does his painting in. And it's just like, he, he, that shows a ton of experience because a lot of guys don't understand how the separation of certain areas is extremely important and i will i will be straight up honest i'm one of those people i did not (laughs) understand the the importance of separating things like my room for paint for example my shop is one large open space and i paint in there everything is covered in paint Oh, that painting room is so nice. Yeah. Like, having that separate section, like, when we work, when I worked there for the week, we worked on two massive doors. Like, the glass panes were probably, like, I don't know, around a couple hundred pounds or something like that. Like, solid glass, tempered glass panes, and just, like, these solid glass doors. And you can, like, usually with Paul, you can tell, you don't, like... You can tell if he's stressed when he is stressed. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell he was stressed when trying to move these doors onto the truck. And I was like, okay, he is definitely nervous about this by the look <laughs> on him. That's, man, it, it's so much different when it's your business, dude. And not all that much. Like, that's your life on the line, man. Oh, like, yeah. It, in so many ways, not just money, but the the word of your business, too. And, like, who you are. As as a maker, if you f stuff up, that follows you, man. Oh yeah, you actually have a really good story about that. Really? So like, I did. I actually have a really good story. When I was knife making, like that, I had a guy so come to me like that, and he asked, "Hey, can you make this Bowie knife?" And I was like, "Sure." And it had these, like, he wanted these thick brass things on it, and it was all like that. It was all great, and that it was. The Bowie was finished, and it was done as a, some kind of Christmas auction for his workers. That was great. The one guy that didn't get it messaged me and said, hey, can you make this exact thing? I was like, sure, I can do that. And then so made that, and then he bought it. And then what happened is is that he, like, um, trying to think. Oh, yeah, he messaged me about it, and he was like, hey, this handle is cracked and it was like an oak wood handle, but that oak was so old probably or whatever. It was pretty old. So I'm pr- was pretty shocked to see that it actually cracked. It was cracked. And I was like, okay, take it back, t- come bring it over and I'll fix it like that. He still hasn't showed up to this day. So I'm afraid 
I don't know if he's like gone and talked to people about him. Yeah. Because that's the one thing that I'm scared of that that's really hindering the business. Because he's just saying, "Oh yeah, this guy has a this guy has given me a crack, like the handle's cracked, and it's not, and he won't fix it, even though that I've given him plenty of time and even told him, "Hey, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. Yeah, for free of charge." Sounds to me like you should be contacting that guy and being like, putting a little bit of a, a bug in his ear, a reminder, and being like, hey, remember that blade that uh, you got from me? I'd really, really like to see it fixed, man. The last thing I want is to have something like that out, out, in, the, out in the open public going around and other people seeing it, man. I'd really like to get that back here so I can fix it up for you. And you know, I want you to have, I want you to have a solid piece in your hands, not something that you're not happy with, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Like he said, well, I'll be, I'll be over this. Like that, the conversation took on a, took place on a Saturday, and then I was like, okay, you can come over this Saturday or Sunday. I'm here. And he's like, he never showed up, even though he said he would. So I don't know. Yeah. Who knows, man? I, it's not the first time I've heard stories about that kind of stuff where somebody had a complaint about a knife, wanted it fixed, the maker agreed that. I get it. It's not what you want. I'll fix it for you. And then the guy never shows up or just ghosts after that. And it's like, what the what the fuck? You just wanted to complain, I guess. I don't know. Like, you feel happy that you got that off your chest now? Okay, cool. Yeah. And well, also, like, the thing is, is that since I work at a gas bar, I see him quite regularly. So oh, that's dude. the funny thing. I, I see him all the time. He sees me like that. And then... He never says a word about it, even though that we meet each other on like, like right. actually in person. Yeah, no, you need to you need to throw a bug in his ear then, and be like, next time you see him, be like, hey, that knife, bud, want to get that yeah, fixed for okay. you? <laughs> Just bring it, bring it, bring it to the gas station next time you come by, man. <laughs> come get gas. Bring the knife. Drop it off. I, I got it, bro. Yeah, you know? I People... almost got fired once for doing that. <laughs> oh no way! Well, okay, for... so like. Um, for some reason, I, for myself, I hate exacto blades. Mm-hmm. They're not. I hate those things because they're just because everybody uses them and then they just are so dull and they're never taken care of because they're just banged around and everything. So I have a fine appreciation for a nice knife. I got so I had like a tiny folder in my pocket all the time or something like that, and they're like, "Hey, you can't carry that." I was like, "Well, is there like?" And they're like, "No," and and. One day I forgot to, I forgot, I forgot and I actually brought it along and supposedly one person saw it. One of the workers saw it. They contacted the high ups and like issued a complaint and then, then said to me, Hey, if you do that again, then this is like, this is your first warning. I was like, Oh my. (laughs) Oddly enough, we have the same rule at work that you're not supposed to have knives at work, but and it's like, are you, are you serious? Like, we've got freaking like sawzalls and freaking. <laughs> we've got exacto knives that have like twelve inch blades on them for getting into like far to reach places. That look, they look like bloody swords for crying out loud. That an exacto knife comes out of, and they're heavy duty blades. Like these are heavy. Man, you were to go at somebody with one of these exacto knives, you're doing a hell of a lot more damage than you are with a freaking. <laughs> regular everyday knife as far as i'm concerned like those a box knife can just slice up skin like nothing else man it's 
heard it before about guys uh wasn't it on on a one of the airplanes that guys hijacked an airplane with the exacto knives some yeah they're 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 just the same as dangerous as any ever blade can be it's just the user yeah really that's what it comes down to man for sure definitely i agree unless it's a railroad spike knife those aren't dangerous because they're not really knives (laughs) (laughs) You Um, you ever played with that stuff um actually that was another time ghosted him like got I was at the fair, and then this guy comes up to me like, "Hey, can you make railroad spike knives?" I was like, "Sure," like that, and I said, "Like, so I, since I don't have like the modern day tools to make them look a bit good, you could say I said I'll take them home and I'll fix them up. Like, well, not fix them up, but like make them actually kind of hard and such, and then make them actually look the blades look somewhat viewable and not like this piece of garbage. So like that, then he's like, "Yeah, I'll be there on the Saturday," and I'll be there on the Saturday and not on the Sunday. So I was like, okay. And then I was there both of those days and he never showed. Huh. So, and they, uh, I actually still have him in the shop to this day. So, hey, they're a little, they're fun. Yeah. He wanted uh, like this almost like little kind of chef knife, kind of railroad spike. And then this little Skinner. So, yeah. You know, I, I, I bring up that spikes aren't, real knives on a regular basis guys that make uh knives out of railroad spikes there's okay yes you can get your ones that are considered higher carbon that can kind of be hardened properly or whatever but you know it's it's more of a joke if if you if you will take it take it with a grain of salt that i'm I'm not being serious that rail spikes aren't knives i mean Heck, you could make a knife out of a out of a piece of rock if you wanted to. For crying out loud, it doesn't just because it's not high carbon steel like ten ninety five doesn't mean it's not a knife. Uh, it's just I fell into this trap before. I don't I can't remember who it was that I was having this. I think it was on the Canadian Blacksmith and Bladesmith page, and we had a discussion about springs. And I was like, "Well, that's not a spring. A spring has to be this and this and this." And somebody turned around and was like, "Linden." A piece of wood can be a spring. Ah, oh, for crying out loud, you're so right. Son of a biscuit. <laughs> okay, well, you got me there. I, Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. actually, I would say that um, Grayson Fair in Winnipeg there, he's kind of dominated the market for those railroad spike knives in the Manitoba in, in area there. In Winnipeg, for sure, yeah. Like, you know, Grayson Fair, he's the dude with the w- water jet. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know who Grayson is. I've known Grayson. He's actually probably one of the first blacksmiths that I knew in Manitoba, to be honest, outside of uh, oh, cool. a couple of guys that own shops. But I met Grayson at a fair. Oh, geez. I think you might have been like one or two years into it. It was like one of his first fairs that I met him at. My wife, my wife phoned me. She was at a Christmas fair. I want to say six years ago, at least. I was like, Dude, there's a blacksmith selling knives at the Christmas fair. You got to come down here and check it out. So I packed up my stuff and ran down to the fair to see these knives. And that's where I met Grayson was at this fair at the, uh, I think it was the Regent Park Hotel. I can't remember for sure, but yeah, known Grayson for about that yeah, long. Yeah, he's time. actually near that, the Little Brown Jug, if you don't know. He's, you know, the Little Brown Jug Brewery. Right. There's a building like almost right beside, like he is very close to that place. Yeah. Well, he's working out of a place called North Forge. 
which is okay. downtown Winnipeg, and it's a it's like a community maker space. So he runs he runs the majority of his work. That's where he has the laser jet is within that facility. Yeah. So I've I've then, yet to have been down there and check it out. I keep on saying one of these days I'm gonna make it down there, but I don't make it very many places nowadays, it seems. Yeah, and then he's always so busy making knives. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, because he is always at a fair or something like that. Then yeah. actually I actually asked Paul if I'm right, I asked Paul that question once, like, have you ever like do you think going to fairs is a good idea? And he's like for me, no, because I don't want to be spending the time on a Saturday or Sunday sitting around and maybe get that one sale, maybe get right. that one sale for the amount I charge when people will contact me through Etsy and everything else. When I, I can do it all at my home shop and then on a Saturday and Sunday, I can go and sit and relax with my kids and do whatever. Yeah. That that ideology becomes very very prevalent when you have children dude and you start to balance your time at home versus your time at work and versus your time with your family and stuff like that it becomes very very obvious very quickly that maybe spending my weekends with my kids and watching them grow up is a little bit more important than making a couple extra bucks on the side that oh yeah like oh sorry keep talking that's slapped that has slapped me hard pretty good recently man that you know i've got a six-year-old daughter myself and i'm watching her grow up and it's just like i'm missing out here man i'm spending too much time worrying about trying to do this side hustle thing versus spending time with her growing up and it's right now it's becoming even more obvious she's got a friend over you just saw her here like a little while ago her and her friend are playing Yes, yesterday she was bugging me. She's like, Dad, I want to play. I want to do this and this and this tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, for sure. As soon as I get home from work, we're going to we'll do something together, play out in the yard or whatever, hang out. Maybe we'll go for an ice cream. She hasn't said a word to me about that tonight. She's got her friend. She wants to play. Dad, who's dad? I for, I don't have dad. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> great. All right, well. Say la vie. That, that was that. I guess I missed out missed out on that train. Oh. Yeah. Well, also oh, like well. um, what's it called? Like, if I'm just trying, to, like even with Paul, like he was always like, well, not always, but like it, when it came around time, he wasn't like getting his wife to do it. Like he he was getting out of the shop and going to go pick up his daughter or his son yeah. from school. Yeah. Which was pretty interesting. Well, very not cool to see. Like just. Like, I've got guys in the shop that can go, and they can handle themselves. So, basically, they can just spend the last half hour or an hour and close up, and then I'll just go and take I'll take the responsibility and take my kids home. Yeah. Did Was John there when you were there? John? Yes. Nice. He's a cool cat. I, I, I like, like him. It. Yeah. I don't, know which, I, I don't know if Kale was. Was Kale or the other guy there? No, I or, only I should John. say Caleb. Yeah, no, just I John. Okay. John, yeah. John, and then that other dude, probably. I don't know if he was there for that duration, but the you were only, there. No, the only guy that I got to meet was John. I was literally at a shop for maybe an hour. Oh, okay. And, yeah, I was on vacation, and it just happened by by chance. 
happened that I was able to go see him, dude. It was, it was an ordeal, man. It was during this whole, we had a vehicle breakdown. My mother-in-law wanted to take the vehicle into Cranbrook to get it fixed because she managed to find a place that she got it fixed at or whatever. I was supposed to go with her. She didn't take me. I ended up hitchhiking into Cranbrook. Paul came and picked me up from the Walmart or something like that, took me to his shop, brought me back to the car shop where my mom was getting her car fixed, jumped in with her alongside with this little sheer that Paul sold me and my mother-in-law's. Didn't even get to see it. I freaking ducked that. I let, left it hidden outside, and then my mother goes goes inside to pay for everything. So I slowly sneak it into the back of the truck. We get back to the camper, and I pull it out. And what's that? Oh, I, yeah, I, my buddy was selling it, and I bought it. You know, this is nothing. It's like, oh, it looks really heavy. Ah, it's nothing. Don't worry about Linden. <laughs> We're already overweight here, dude. And it's like, ah, you have to, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get rid of my beer. And I drank a bunch of beer real quick to make up for the weekends. <laughs> I don't know. Like, was that the blue one? Yep. yep. Okay. Oh, because I've actually used that one. Cause yeah. There, there was one evening where, uh, like, I was, because uh, I don't know if you know the rules in their shop, but if if you have free time on your free time, Okay. He'll actually let you use the forge, the power hammer, basically any tool except for the steel he has on the rack there. Like and you his... can, but then you have to pay for it. And his anvil. Yep. Oh no 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 no. no Don't touch two. that. No, there's two of them. You cannot touch, no matter right. what. Especially <laughs> the big one. He made that he very made that clear. clear. He said. <laughs> he, he, he said, "If you touch, like if you, if I ever see you touch, like not with your hands, like but with a hammer, like even like lightly tap it with a hammer, you are not allowed in the shop." Yeah, no. is that strict? And I can understand. If do you know the story about that anvil? Yes, I know fully well the story about where it came. I think we've actually talked about it before. Um, probably right when I got back from BC, I I brought it up on the podcast as to. You know, the fact that I went and visited him and he has that, that's, what is it, 650-pound anvil, right? That, yes. That uh, there was only two of them made and the gentleman yes. that and made, then, like, because, yeah. like, and the maker of it is dead. Like, if, oh, like, and if I'm right, and if I'm right, the maker did die like that from a disease or something like that. Yeah, heart attack. Heart attack, like that, that's I think right. that's what Paul was saying. Yeah. yeah it's unfortunate because those are, beautiful anvils and that gentleman was getting ready to start that anvil business and that i think he had a really smart business plan there with that because i've seen places like look at holland anvil for example they have holland anvil out of michigan i know who they are yeah you know who they are oh yeah i know who holland anvil is i follow them oh okay i thought you meant like you know know them like he oh no not that way (laughs) yeah yeah okay so you you know of them yeah, yeah, uh, man. I've been following Holland Anvil since probably their very first post about anvils, and I was like, "H thirteen anvils," and I was like, "Dude, yes. Why? Why hasn't somebody been doing this?" And by all means, every anvil should be made of H thirteen. Why wouldn't they be? It's the perfect steel, almost. I would say, right? That it's or a eight, tool or, steel or H thirty three. 
That'd be another H great one. Yeah, then because no. H fourteen is used all the time by farriers, like for their great. tools for punching and drifting, like for their because it can just it can take a beating so much. It can yeah. take so much of a beating and just survive everything basically. Well, the 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 real beauty of H thirteen is its ability to hold its shape even at a like almost a red temperature, dude. Like when the, when you have a chunk of H thirteen and it's starting to glow red, it still will not deform. I find, and that's I I have definitely moved to H thirteen for a lot of my tools, and I've bought an a uh, few pieces of H thirteen specifically for the you know the future purposes of making more tools out of it. That's but actually really interesting. Oh, oh, sorry, keep talking. The one thing that I have found with H13 is you have to be extremely careful about um, work hardening it. About what? Work hardening it. Oh, yeah. It, it work hardens. So, like, the ends of your drifts, for example, tend to work harden and start to, to get chunks that splinter off or and... and chunk off on you and yeah it's a little dangerous when it comes to that maybe i'm i've done something wrong and here we go here we go i'm saying something that i don't know for sure is 100 percent, and somebody might be able to come back and say Lyndon, you're totally an idiot and you know what you're talking about h13 shouldn't be doing that maybe you need to be like retempering your steel or something like that at the end and you know there there's that like you get guys that take a ball peen hammer and turn it into into a top tool you just have to make sure that you temper the hell out of the striking end, right? Yeah. Then, yeah, I just going to say, like, if it does that, then perfect mixture would to be to smelt H14 and 4140. That would almost be a good mixture. I don't know. Yeah. Well, like, having the striking end being 4140 and the working end being H13, you mean? Like, yeah, like, have those two steels. I don't know. I don't smelt metals, so I don't, right. I, I can't talk from experience there. No, I think smelting them, you're just like you'd be mixing the alloys together. I would say, like, the, your idea of having like the striking end being 4140, like if you forge weld them together, H13, like, H13 to 4140. No, like, I was talking more like, yeah, like two, melting two to sit, like two alloy metals together, like in how they do. With like making different metals, like almost like cast iron and all those right. different alloys. Well, my assumption would be that H13 probably has a lot of the properties of 40, 4140 plus more to it, right? Probably. I'm not so, a specialist uh, in that, so yeah. I can't talk yeah. from experience. <laughs> Me neither, dude. I ain't no metallurgist, specialist, scientist kind of guy, man. That's a question for Dr. Laren Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I there's only one steel that would be really cool to try. I forget the name of it, but it was featured in a hacksmith build for their Wolverine claws, and it was a steel. It's a steel. It's an actual steel that could be bent. You could bend it at 90 degrees or whatever, and it remembers. So that means you can heat it up with a mini blowtorch to not get to red hot, but even to like with a mini blowtorch heat, and it would bend right back to its programmed state. It's an actual what? steel. You can look it up. Yeah, no, I want to say I've heard something about this before, but I'm not getting any, like, major memories here on it, so I can't say anything about it, to be honest. But I I, I want to say I've heard about something regarding that before. 
it's yeah, it's like a super it's like a super alloy you could call it. Okay. Yeah, crazy. So you want to get into the abstract or the abstract, the artist blacksmithing, sorry. You want to get into the artist blacksmithing side of things. That's where you want to go forward with stuff. What are you planning on doing as far as going forward with that? Do you need to expand your shop? Do you want to move out on your own and have your own shop right away? Are you going to stay at home for a while? What's your plans? So kind of my plans for right now are like, um, right now I'm like, I'm working out in my dad's shop. It's like a 40 by 52 shop like that. It's, it's, it's meant for mechanic work like that. So I have my own, you could say, personal corner for the, of a shop piece for forging. And then I, then for plans, I plan to do like a sculpture. Then, yeah, then I actually might, depends, like there's supposedly going to be like a meeting or something like that in September about it. But I might have a chance to build a sculpture for two towns. Nice, nice. Like an actual, like full size sculpture because they're wanting to build one for their s- middle of their town and then the other one is because they're building like a trail so they're and the, actually the towns are local around this area so yeah that would be pretty Dude, it's gonna be pretty interesting that's if exactly, that actually does go for all through oh fuck yeah that's exactly the kind of shit that i want to get into man that is top notch right there man getting involved in public art like that Oh, it's so good. Are you going to like start playing with some sample stuff? So you got an idea of where you're, you should, you like have stuff that you can present to the town, right? And be like, this is a sample of what I can make. Oh yeah. Like actually, like, I don't know if you have, I don't know if Paul ever told you, but like the, have you ever heard of the, the, um, the peace pole project that he did? I don't know. So the peace pole project was almost like we had to take around six or so 30 foot lawn pieces of court of one eighth fit one yeah one eighth thick by four inch wide like that just 30 feet lawn these lawn strips yeah. like that we had to run every single one through that big forge to get it all softened and then we had to wire wheel every side so that's like sick that's like 60 like that's that's like over how many hundred feet right, that we all yeah. had to wire wheel. Then we had to bend the ends, bend and make these tips to look like tree vines almost. And then we right. had to bend it around a big round mandrel to like then do make this big round man, big round statue, get those together and then make a big heart at the top with sheet metal as well. I don't know if we've talked, if me and him have talked about that one interesting i it's bringing up a thought process of somebody else i may have talked to about something similar because i know lashin which is he's out of the same area kind of he's more more over by nelson lashin did a really big heart project i swear to god you're like you're talking about almost the same thing with with that he did but i would imagine paul's even larger scale than what lashin does because I know Lashin doesn't have nearly the scale of shop that Paul does. So I could imagine that Paul's was absolutely massive, but I'm definitely not. Yeah. It's not coming to my memory that we've, I need to get Paul on the show. We had him with can iron back last summer. I don't know. If, have you seen can iron stuff, dude? Uh, no, if I've you, heard about it, but like I haven't. If you go over to can iron.ca, 
and scroll around in there, you'll find the virtual canine stuff from last summer. Use the password Big Anvil, I believe is the password. It might be capital lock B and then IG, uh, regular lowercase, and then uppercase A on the anvil. I think something like that. Like uppercase B, lowercase IG, uppercase A, and then lowercase the rest of the word anvil. You might have to play around with that a little bit to figure it out. But, dude, head over to Canarn, dude. There's so many good interviews. There's some demonstrations on there. That was a wicked awesome virtual event with a ton of information packed in there. And Paul's interview would probably be very interesting for you to check out. Yeah, like, if, like the dude that, actually the older dude that was at here, like, the the freshman's reunion, he was talking about Can I Yarn, because there's a, there's a place, you probably heard of them there, North American Artist Blacksmith Association or something like that. Yeah, Abana. Artist, yeah, okay. Artist Blacksmith Association of North America. Yeah, like them. He yep. he follows them quite closely, and he's like, I wanted to go, but like since it's kind of hard to travel over, you know, kind of yep. hard to travel over like that. He wants to go to the Can Iron event, so, nice because they always do it in like North Carolina. They're well, Abana. that the Abana ones, yeah, the Abana. The last one was in Rochester, I think Rochester. Area. Okay. And uh, so Canon and Abana tend to kind of work a little bit in conjunction with each other. Canon is usually held on one year and then Abana the next. So that way, if people really want to go to Canon, they're not kind of like, oh, what do I do? Do I do Canon or, or do I do Abana? Because Abana is huge, dude. They'll have like just a massive event planned out Com- compare in comparison to Canarn, dude it's just insanely huge Canarn is still a great event but holy moly that there's so well the population difference right it just it's simple math oh yeah but uh last in-person Canarn event was in northern saskatchewan and for me to have gotten there would have been a 14-hour drive from winnipeg so oh, i my. kind of opted out because of that yeah had I had, like, I think at this stage, I probably know enough people that we could have got a pool together and we could have all pooled pool card up there together and had a good time. But at that time, I didn't know anybody really in blacksmithing in Manitoba. I knew a few people, but not enough. And uh, the next in-person Canarn event is supposed to be, well, this is why the virtual one happened, is there was supposed to be one held in Fergus, Ontario. Then COVID hit, screwed everything up. And Justin and I from the Manitoba Blacksmith Guild decided to do a virtual canarn in lieu of the in-person event being canceled. Now that COVID has decided to take off and things are normal per se, I guess. I don't know if you want to call this normal. What is normal? But <laughs> they're they're planning to do another in-person canarn event in Fergus, Ontario. So that is something I'm super excited about. Let's see here. Demonstrators. We've got Harry Sheridan, Jeff Helms, Matthew Collette, David Robertson, Matt Jenkins. Ooh, Karen... Matt Jenkins. Yes. Just wait. Karen Kunane. I don't know that name, so I apologize. I apologize if I said that incorrectly. Here it is. You ready for this one? Peter Braspinix, buddy. Ooh, if you don't know if, if you don't know who Peter Brasmanix is, Gregory, dude, 
that man will blow your mind away with artistic blacksmithing. Really? Oh, hell yeah. And last and not least on this list, Rob Martin from Thack Ironworks. That's another gentleman that will absolutely blow your mind when it comes to artistic blacksmithing. I think I've heard of him before. If you haven't. I'm pretty sure I've heard of him somewhere. Both those names. If you haven't heard them, man, you're almost hiding under a rock, my friend. So there's (laughs) going to be live demonstrations, a teaching tent, on-site camping and meal plans available. There's lots of fast food and pubs nearby. There'll be an ironwork gallery and live auction Saturday night. And this is located only 1.5 hours away from Fergus, Ontario, or from Toronto, Ontario, in scenic Fergus. This is awesome. This is held by, are being put, put on by the Ontario Artist Blacksmith Association as, uh, as well as the Fergus Tourism uh, Association there, it looks like. So this is awesome. You can register at caniron.ca. Early bird registration deadline is June 1st of 2023. So you still got lots of time to go sign up for that. Full day and single day admission options are available. That's August 3rd to August 6th, 2023 in Fergus, Ontario. Can Iron 13, everybody. Yes, I'm stoked. I don't know about you, but I was planning to go to this event two years ago when it got canceled. No, a year ago when it got canceled. And that's when we held the virtual one. I very much plan to be at this one. I, I If I miss this, I'm going to be upset. Very, very upset. Like I missed the Blade show that just happened in Ontario. I was upset about that. And for multiple reasons. My biggest reason I'm upset is I didn't get to go hang out with Steve. And I didn't get to meet Rob Bonifab. Like I was planning to go hang out with Rob Bonifab. And, uh, and Lawrence Lake was there too. I missed out on Lawrence Lake. Dude, speaking about Lawrence Lake, I just got mail from him too. I made an order on what? Friday, I think it was, or something like that. It's here. It's oh, I spoke about that on the last podcast. So I think I ordered it on Thursday. It's here now. I, it was. I don't know how long it's been here for. I guess my wife was like, "Hey, you got this package here? Hey, woo, shoot, sorry, thanks, thanks, Lawrence. I'm super pumped. I haven't opened it yet, but I'm looking forward to opening that right away after the show. Probably I'll get to it, eh? But yeah, he's if- pretty. He's pretty fast extremely fast dude extremely good with what he does and he's also gone forward and hooked up forge side chat with the code fsc kiln saves you 100 bucks on paragon or even heat kilns can't go wrong with either of those it's been honestly probably in my opinion the number one way for you to really really step up your game in the knife making world even in the even like if you're doing tools of any sort you should really consider having a heat treat oven and just don't there's so many other things you can skip i wouldn't skip that option like you can't you cannot compete with somebody that's got their heat treating game down and it's very much impossible to have your heat treating game down without a proper heat treating oven and he carries all the other stuff got he has quenching oils he's got all the stuff you need to make the stuff that you want to quench your 1040 or 1090, 1080, 1075, 15 and 20. If I'm not mistaken, actually, I think I saw that he's got his 1075 on a clearance price that was like way cheaper than the stock price. So he checked that out. And uh, dude, the Actorox belts that everybody talks about that are so amazing, 
I'm yet to find out. But if everybody else is saying what they're saying about him is true, man, get yourself some Actorock belts, buy five of them, save yourself a bit of money on that, 10%. And uh, that's it. MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca And then also, like, there's a real, I don't know if he sells the book there, but, like, it's an amazing book for heat treating. It's on, it's, let me, let me see. Let me just grab it quickly. Oh, um, yeah. The Bible. Life Engineering by Dr. Laren Thomas. Probably, yeah, it, that's an amer- amazing book because right in the back here, like, here, let me grab a piece. Let me just grab a good piece of it. Like for so like for fifty two one hundred on page for three hundred and ninety six. So for fifty two one hundred it gives you a good Rockwell hardness chart for like if you so from right yeah, so like for doing for fifteen hundred to fifteen hundred twenty five for fifteen minutes fifteen minutes oftenizing fast oil quench temper at three hundred to four hundred feet Fahrenheit. So it shows you how to and then it will show you what that hardness will go to if it has been cryo-treated and if it hasn't been cryo-treated. And what I love about that book, like, what I love about it, just gives you this nice graph telling you what that's going to, like, it's going to become this hardness, so it's going to become, like, 65 hardness at 300 Fahrenheit at that, and then just on probably every steel there is. Hello? Uh, and so you were saying the um, the fifty two one hundred there in Doctor Laren Thomas's book. Um, uh, yeah, I was just saying like about it gives you a whole different graph on how to heat treat it and how to do on how to just get that proper Rockwell hardness result. So like doing showing you on this graph of after your four hundred degree Fahrenheit temper that doing that will then cause at that certain point will cause the if it has been cryo treated it will go up to 60 on um, 62.5 rockwell hardness but if it's not been cryoed it will go from 59 to then to 61 without cryo treating so okay. you could say it shows you what's happening if there is cryo and if there's none Actually, that's one one of the things that I really respected about that book is it shows you the entire scientific breakdown of all the research he's done, essentially, about, you know, he, he took coupon after coupon after coupon, not him personally, because he had, there's a whole team of guys that worked with him on this, hey? Some of them are actually in Canada, too, and I, I've been talking to those guys, but coupon after coupon after coupon tested in the different quench oils available at different temperatures and all sorts of different variables to find out what it is that achieves what or what what you achieve essentially with those variables right which is super cool very cool very great book like i said the bible when it comes to that yeah yeah dr laren thomas uh he's been on knife talk a couple times now and dude is just a boat of knowledge man i bet i've got a guy uh that's been playing in the same world as him but with copper alloys and me and this gent have been chatting back and forth for a few months now he wants to come on the podcast 
but we're getting ready for a certain timeline for him to come on the podcast because he's actually an American guy and we are going to do right now I'm doing uh, a frame of beginner blacksmithing essentially bring highlighting guys that just are kind of new to the scene still learning a lot haven't set their seed fully planted yet so you know that's that's why we've got you on today Gregory is to learn from you as to what it's like to be a beginner blacksmith to take us back to those days of of learning and not not knowing do I need this tool do I need this tool what tools do I really need in my shop and I'm not sure where I'm gonna going I'm playing with this I'm playing with that it's exciting dude like I, it's probably not for you but for me it's exciting to hear this stuff and I'm sure for even guys like Paul it's exciting because you forget what it was like to to be in those shoes of trying to find your your next anvil or something like that you probably have a real anvil now right Yes, I do. It's um, I think it would be like a two hundred pound. I'm presuming it's a hay button, but like, the thing is, it's slim and long. Like, it's designed for a knife maker. In my personal opinion, it was designed for a knife maker because it's just hmm. slim in width and just in length, just long. Everything on it is long. Long. Hmm. I I have that same issue with something in my pants. But like. I couldn't pass it up. Like I actually got it from my apprentices, like who he apprenticed from, like Stuart Lambert. He actually got it for like I got it for like five hundred and fifty bucks. So I couldn't Ooh. pass it up, no matter what. No kidding, that's a good deal. Right on, good for you, bud. That's a really good deal. I'm stoked to hear that, man. And did did he kind of make the deal with you that if you ever decide to get rid of that anvil, you kind of got to pass on that same love and make sure that whoever you're selling it to, you're giving them a good deal. Yeah. Unless it's, unless it's some prick like me that just hoards anvils. (laughs) I kind of do want to hoard anvils. Maybe (laughs) I just get myself like a little baby anvil, like Paul. Do the same thing. (laughs) You got to take care of that baby. Give it lots of love. Cause one day it might grow up to be a real big one. (laughs) Yeah. That was hilarious. Cause he, it wasn't just me. It was like, like he was doing that with me as well. It wasn't just you. Yeah. Oh, he does it with everybody that comes in the shop. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. To oh. see. Just like, you gotta love your baby Anvil. What other kind of cool stuff do you got going on in the shop right now that you think is is of note? Um um I don't know. Now that I finished the dagger challenge, that was a fun little one, but um trying to think. Yeah, just I like. I mean, um, I mean, tool wise, like what tool kind of wise? tools? Yeah, what kind of tools do you have in your shop right now that are that are standing out to you that are important to you? What are your most important tools to you now? At this important point? tools to me is, I know it may seem a bit insignificant, but actually a hammer to me, who was made by Chad Lawson, Chad oh. Lawson. But the thing that made it really, he's okay. He's an amazing farrier and great tool maker, and like. He makes them designed for farriers mostly, but the really cool thing about it is it was actually gifted to me this Christmas by by my the farrier, the guy that's been teaching me. So that's what I, I take care. You could say it's like my baby. You could say like people like that when like someone's in there working on mechanics. I'm like hide that hammer. 
a cat freak out. <laughs> like, and I see someone like wanting to use it. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. You can't use it for anything else than forging. I don't want it dented. <laughs> no, for sure. So if you're getting into the artist blacksmiths are scene of things, are you starting to get yourself into collecting top tools, bottom tools, swage block, anything like that? Yes. And actually, I don't know. Did you see the two swage blocks that Paul had there at his shop? Uh, you know what? I I apologize. I I probably did, but I don't recall off the top of my head. What about them? Okay. Well, there's actually cool two cool things about them is that you can buy those two blocks still to this day. You oh, can. yes. I know which ones you're talking about. The ones that go together to create the long cone, right? Yes. And yeah. those two, you can still buy them today from, I forget where they're from. I'd have to ask. I want to say like, Thack. I want to say Thack carries them. Like, there's, um, there's a company in, I think, Ontario. Iowa or something like that, that still carries them to this day. Yeah, well, not carries no. them, makes them to this day. So yeah. you, And you can buy them. If I'm right, it would have costed me around around 1500 bucks to get both of them in br- of brand them. new from to here. Yeah. Which, and if you think about it, how much Swade's block costs to get two of them for that price is pretty good, I'd say. I just bought one from a gentleman, Pat Taylor, a few months ago for $500, plus shipping and whatnot. I can't remember what it ended up, closer to $600 by the time I got here. But it is a beautiful little anvil with a bunch of bowl dishes on it. Uh, There's a hammer swage on or not a, a shovel swage on it and then it's got all your round swages and half half square swages around the side as well it's a really yeah. nice little swage block for the price yeah man reach out to pat taylor if you're interested in getting one of those he's available uh, through facebook is where i found him yeah and then then yeah and then just trying to think yeah those shovels those are i've tried i tried one they're a bit of a pain <laughs> To make a shovel? Yeah. Yeah. Even making a, a nice bowl isn't exactly the easiest thing, man. Yeah. I, I I personally find actually making bowls pretty enjoyable. Yep. yep. Those, what what process do you go through to make a bowl? Do you use a wood stump or what do you um, do? So, like, I, a big person that I always watch and take tips from is Christ-Centered Ironworks or Black yeah. Bear. Do you know Christ-Centered? Yeah. Both of them. I don't know them, but I know of them. Yeah. Well, like I, yeah, you could say, but like that would be the same thing. But like, cool idea I saw from like um Christ Center is he took a rod and then bent it into a circle, and then yeah. that is a makeshift cone thing that you yeah. can then put in your in on your anvil, and that actually is real. I have to say that is actually really nice for doing. But then yeah. I found something that's even better. So, you know, on a disc, like on a plow, like disc, for disking up land, there are those spacers between the discs. Those spacers, if you pull one off, you will see that it actually has a rounded end to it. That inside is rounded. And then if you can find a way to mount that to an anvil without, like, ruining your anvil or whatever, and, like, have it sitting on there nice... Yeah. It is one of the best bull swages you will ever get for a beginner without having to buy an actual swage block. Dude, that's awesome. Great, great tip of advice right there. I love it. That's so perfect. 
uh, if you want my second hand advice to that all you need to do is take that piece that cup that you've got and a piece of quarter inch plate steel weld it to that piece of plate steel and then take a one inch shank and weld a one inch square shank to the bottom of that plate steel and now you got yourself a hardy tool yeah actually i actually have a a very it's very makeshift swage block so it has so since my dad is a trucker like that he goes through brake discs and they're like these big big brake discs on the semi trucks you've probably seen them now they've got the holes okay if you spend the time and file them and drill more holes than they have to file them to different shapes, you can essentially make your own swage block with enough time. Oh, man, you're giving me nightmares thinking about doing that, dude. Back to the files. Back to the files. <laughs> well, like, you can do most of the hard work with a die grinder. Most yes. of the hard work you can do with a die grinder and then just do the little bits of square that you want to do with a file. And That's what air- I did, and it actually works out pretty good for the little bit that I want to do with it. Air arc gouging goes a long way with that as well. You got an air arc that you can gouge everything out with. Oh, yeah. Uh, Are you talking plasma? plasma No. Air arc is essentially, it looks like a stick for stick welding. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. and you hook up your air to it, and it actually blows out what you're trying to, instead of welding it, it heats it up to weld temperature, but it also blows it out as you go, right? Yeah. And extremely if I'm, messy and dangerous but and if i'm right cool. very loud very loud yeah very <laughs> loud very smoky and it okay so there's it's fun to do maybe you know the first couple of times to do it but if you've got to do that day in day out that is a oh god i feel sorry for anybody that would have to do that for a living all day long <laughs> getting flashbacks oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I may have, <laughs> I may have had to do it lots in my time at one point. Yeah. No fun, I'll tell you that much. Like I said, a little bit, it's not so bad. But you, and and nowadays, no one's using. Well, there are still guys using air arc because you. The thing that's beautiful about the air arc gouge is you can get into things that you have, like your the length of your stick. Well, that's how far you can get into something. You're not getting your plasma gun into a tiny little hole that far down, right? Yeah. So there, there is things the air arc gouge can do that the plasma gun just can't do. But nowadays, if you're just doing like flat plate gouging, plasma is the way to go for sure. So fast and so much better. Yeah. And like you were saying about tools, like another tool that I've really come to appreciate is the power, the power hammer. Yeah. Over. I can imagine. Like that still... I personally don't like mechanical hammers as much as air hammers using an air hammer at Paul shop, but still <laughs> having the mechanical hammer, it's, it's okay. I'd say it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's still a hammer. So yeah. it's not like it doesn't have its place, but it's, it's still not as nice as an air hammer for controllability, but still. Justin just picked himself up a 25 pound little giant. Hey, eh? yeah, I saw that, that Justin picked the one up. Saw that. Yeah. Got it mounted and going already. It's all right. I mean, the, there's no offense. The 25 ha- pound hammer is a great little hammer. Me personally, I would want a 50 pound or higher, like for sure. I, I'm in the yeah. middle of building myself tire hammers and I'm planning on doing a, a buddy of mine out in St. Albert, uh, Ben, ben Tiedelt. I don't know if I said his last name right. I probably totally botched that really bad. He's got 
his tire hammer set up with an 80 pound ram and he kind of gave me the the gist on how he managed to do an 80 pound ram and you talk to guys that are in the power hammer scene or the tire hammer scene and they're like yeah 80 pounds is doable but it kind of isn't the greatest the way ben has it set up it works like a charm dude so 80 pounds on one and then probably 60 on the other was my thoughts and the reason i'm doing the different weights is i want that one that hits really hard and then i want that one that it doesn't hit as hard so that i can do smaller stuff on it and kind of differentiate between the two like one can be more for drawing something out and one will be more for for setting things in stone kind of thing right yeah like um the really the reason i ended up with this hammer is because like again my farrier friend was like hey that's um my like um one of my teachers jonathan green his uncle like norm green he has this power hammer for sale because he's not using it anymore it's it's a thousand bucks and i was like of course i'm gonna take it dude oh yeah the only thing i ever had to buy for that was a um, motor so really i just had to buy a motor and just a and like that and then yeah and then recently i just put a like i repainted it and everything yeah oh it looks really really nice in the red dude i like that red paint on it yeah thank you then I was skeptical skeptical about it when you had it posted for sale because one of the things that circulates in the blacksmithing community is paint is usually done to hide defects on things. So yeah, you'll get for me, you'll it get wasn't guys to hide it was just to kind of make it look a little cooler. Yeah, for sure. That's and the it does reason look, why it wasn't to hide. Like it was it. to make it look cool, like yeah. that. And then basically, when I found you could say me wanting to sell it was almost a bit of a rush thing. Because what happened yeah. is, I found out about Paul. I bought it, and then I found out about Paul, and I was like, "Hey, if I, I kind of was like almost like, I was like so determined, like I should, I should move to BC and stuff like that without thinking like that." So right. I was like, you know, and I just bought a car, so probably I should just maybe sell it and then pay for the car and then just go and then, yeah, and then I kind of come back and I was like, "Is it really a smart idea?" And then Paul was like, "Do not sell that thing." I urge no. you, do not sell that thing. Because Mechanical Hammers, he said, has a very special place in his heart yeah. for him. Because they, like, back in the day, like, he, he picked up two for 500 like for five hundred bucks or something like that. Because you could just find them. Well, the nice thing about, for me anyways, as far as I'm concerned, the nice thing about a Mechanical Hammer is you can get away with running it if the power goes out you yeah. got yourself an old diesel engine or something like that hook it up to the flywheel and away you go you got yourself something that drives it right belt system yeah. of some sort that's all you really need so i mean the same thing with a venturi burner i'm i'm not a big fan of venturi forges um for the main fact that I just they're not as efficient as a forced air burner or a ribbon burner, right? But they have a special place in my heart too because they're legitimately like where things would be if we didn't have power. That's what we would be doing. You know, if, if the power went out tonight and we didn't have power for the next week, if I had to forge anything and I had a venturi forge, I could do it. If yeah. I had only a forced air forge, 
screwed. Yeah, like, because that's, uh, that was actually a cool thing with Paul, is also, like, he, like, wanted to show me, like, what would happen if you do not turn on the fan, because he was like, so, and then he showed me, like, so, you know how to run it? I was like, yeah, so, he show, I showed him, like, because he asked, like, how do you do it? And then I showed him, like, that, and then what happened is, he's like, so, here, I'm going to show you what happens if you do not turn on your blower. So, like, that. He turns off the blower and it just shows it burning. He says, if you leave that propane on, it becomes this fireball. And meanwhile, it's the forge is becoming a literal fireball in front of my eyes. Yeah. This massive fireball like going already like two feet up top on the forge. And he's just like, that is what happens. And then he just shut the propane off and he's like, that will keep getting higher and higher and higher until it touches the roof and burns down the shop. Yep. It's getting higher and higher. So like that, and then he just turned, then he just turned it off and turned back on the the air just to show. And I thought that was actually a pretty cool learning thing to show. Like instead of just telling someone, he just he actually showed them like that. So Dude, what could happen? That is the best way to teach people things. It's one thing to tell somebody something like "Don't do this because this is what's going to happen," but when you show somebody that you this is the result of what happens when you do what I told you not to do or what I, when I tell you to do what I told you to do, vice, vice versa, right? When you get to see those results from the person that's teaching you things, it really, really starts to like matter at that point. Whereas if they tell you, you're like, well, you know, maybe I kind of want to find out on my own, right? I, I'm not sure I, I believe you or, you know, you've told me some things before that, didn't really add up so does this one add up and i kind of want to go play with it and find out on my own so you go and you just play with it to find out things you know this goes back to being a kid and you know your parents tell you not to do something and you you know well why because i told you not to okay and what does that do leaves you as a curious kid to go and play with matches or something right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then i forget what also was like kind of I'm trying to think about it was something else. Oh yeah. Another reason that really stuck with me from Paul was about motivation. So here's like, like it's hard to do something that you hate. Like it's hard to do that. And he's like, and he told me like back when he worked for like the first guy, like when he was 13, he hated making shovels. He hated it so much, but you know, he fought, you know what, instead of hating it and not wanting to do it, I will just try to make more every day. So like that. So what happened with him is that supposedly he would just, he was able just to crank shovel after shovel after shovel because he would just do it. He'd he'd hate it still, but he kept thinking, you know what, I'm just going to try to do it harder to, tomorrow. So we come back and supposedly he got so good and efficient. This is what Paul was telling me that he got so good and efficient at it that supposedly even the head guy was telling him that that, that you've pro- you probably make more shovels in a day than anyone has ever that has come through the shop. That's so that's nice. actually a really cool thing for motivation for me, I think. Yeah. Me and him had that exact same discussion and I brought up the fact that like, dude, that's so crazy because I worked at a manufacturing plant back in the day and they overhired welders. So they asked some of the welders if they would do, um, what do you call that? Like build up, uh, putting things together. Fuck, I can't think of the word for that right now. Wow. Assembly. 
they asked if we'd go on the assembly line for a little bit. Me and my buddy Todd were like, ah, sure, why not? I don't care. Let's go on the assembly line. You know, they're going to pay us the same? Yep, not a problem. Great, let's go to it. So we went to the assembly line and we started assembling hoppers for for grain bins. Oh, yeah. And we were like, you know, kind of like new to assembly, but we we were welders, so we we knew how things go together, right? So we're like, okay, playing around with things, this and that. After one night, we were like, why why isn't things set up a little bit differently? So this flows faster, and the supervisor's like, I, I don't get how that's going to work. But if, if you guys think it's going to work, go ahead and change things and make it work the way you guys think. So we started changing things. And if I'm not mistaken, and the supervisor was the guy that held the record for this before, he's like, me and the guy that used to work on this were pumping out 24 a night, and we were we were considered the best of the best. No one ever could pump out 24 a night. Todd and I were pumping out 28 a night. And they were like, <laughs> they were floored. They couldn't believe it. Like how you guys have been doing this for like a week and you're pumping out 28 a night. It didn't make any sense. And a lot of that was the same thing was this motivation of like, I don't want to do this. If I can show them how to do this better, they're going to put some other yuppie on this and let us go on to something else that they want to want us to show us how to do that one better too. So, and that's exactly what happened. We showed them how to do hoppers way better than anybody else had done it. They moved us onto a different, onto a different station, back to welding again, and said, "Okay, show us how you do that with this now." <laughs> yeah. And then, also, it, I don't know if like with your short encounter, but like Paul, he loves to be a bit of a how would you like he loves to like I wouldn't know how you'd say that it's not mean or like that, but like he almost like to like kind of show off his skill, and it was like quite funny because so. We had some railings to be made, like the pieces between. We were yeah. like rod that was forged down a bit, and then no, it was for texturing a bar of steel like that. And he was like, he said, like he wanted to show me, so like that. He's like, so take a close look, and he'd like use his one hand and then switch it over to the next hand. I was like, and I was kind of oblivious because I thought he was trying to show me how to do it because I'm like I was legitimately looking at it. He's like, did you catch that? I was like. Like you're trying to show me how to do it, like like no, like watch my hands. And he's like, and he uses his right hand, then uses his left hand. I was like, then he's like, and I still not catch on. He's just over the anvil, just laughing, just like like. And then I just caught on. He's like trying to show me that you can forge evenly with both hands, which is uh, I think the most amazing feat of skill. Like uh, that's just amazing what he can do there. It makes me wonder where that comes from because I had an injury once where my right arm was messed up. And I decided to try forging using my left arm. Holy shnakes, buddy. Yeah, that ain't easy. <laughs> yeah, that it was. Um, like, you can probably get good at it. But still, like, there are some people that are just really, really good at it. And he's good at doing that. And then, yeah. Then, well... Well, dude, man, I mean, me and you have been chatting for, all, like, it's getting close to two hours now here, I think. I can't remember exactly how long our first recording. Oh, eh, there it is right there, an hour and 17 minutes. And we got 25 on here, so we're we're busting over the hour and a half mark at this point, my man. Uh, I try to try to keep them around an hour and a half if I can, but, uh, you know, you get into good conversations, you just keep on going with it, right? 
you think there's anything else you want to kind of bring to light while we while we got you here, man? Talk about anything else? Bring to life? Huh. I don't know. Um, like, I don't know. when. So just a quick question, but when did you start blacksmithing? That's a, that's a tough question, man. Uh, you know, I've gone over this before. And and this this is a this is a funny question maybe back at you to to reiterate where I'm going to come from this what is blacksmithing what what is blacksmithing blacksmithing what? is for my like is to manipulate a piece of steel or like 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 a piece of steel to for to your will basically to manipulate it to your will to create this piece that you're wanting, create this piece or thing that you want to make. That's what I think. Like also, so like yeah. you're manipulating that steel to create this piece of art or yeah. Which would you consider if somebody was to use strictly a die grinder and an angle grinder to create a sculpture, would that be a blacksmith? Yeah, I would say that. Okay. No. I'd say that's... like you're still man, you're kind of manipulating it. So like, yeah, you're you're getting out there and you're working with the metal. Okay. So if you consider if you were to put that into the boat of blacksmithing, I've been blacksmithing for over twenty years now at this point. Okay. Um, if you were to say a blacksmith requires a forge and an anvil or an anvil-like source of some sort or an object. If you don't have an anvil-like object in your shop and you don't have a forge, how could you be a blacksmith? Well, I mean, there's other ways about it. You know, using a torch. You don't have to hit stuff with a hammer to shape it to be a blacksmith. You know, twisting square stock after it being heated with a torch and doing it in incremental sections so that you get the twist you want to get. Is that not blacksmithing? Well... I did that when I was in college for welding. So I start, that's essentially where my blacksmithing journey started. And it's funny that you asked me this question because I just had this conversation earlier today with a colleague of mine. I'm, I'm working with a gentleman from Siemens. He's from Atlanta, actually. And uh, I mentioned to him, I do this podcast and, you know, what's it about? And I tell him it's about blacksmithing. That's so crazy, man. I always have always had this like thought in the back of my head that if I would have been born like a hundred years ago, that's what I would have been as a blacksmith. I don't know how many people I've heard that from, but that that's you know that I feel the same way. Had I would have been born a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, I would have gravitated towards blacksmithing. I have a funny feeling I could be wrong, but blacksmithing just seems like it's it's in me that the want to create. Maybe maybe it wouldn't have been blacksmithing. Blacksmithing. Maybe it would have been carpentry or or stone sculpture or something. But I just something in me wants to create, and I don't want to just create whatever. I want to create like stuff that's gonna be enjoyed by the by the thousands, if possible. You know, like a a, a town sculpture, like what you were talking about earlier. Doing something like that would bring me the greatest gratitude whatsoever that you could ever possibly have. I, I'd be so grateful to this world for that experience to have that experience in this world to create that art that who knows how many people are going to enjoy it and for how many years people are going going to enjoy it that's that's to me that's a very humbling experience to to ever to ever enjoy that and to do enjoy it multiple times throughout life like like Paul has dude 
what an amazing life, man. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Compare that to, you know, uh, somebody that goes to a manufacturing planting, puts together hoppers all day long. Like, yeah, yeah you're doing something for this world. But, I mean, how great, how, how, how much of a gratitude do you have to this world for being allowed to go down that path? I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are in that line of work that wish they they had something more to themselves and creating art to me is is one of the most beneficial things to mankind in general womankind mankind humankind sorry as well as a personal gratification that you get from it it's just the the nothing else can touch what creating art does as far as i'm concerned and that's always been in me through college playing with metal i was just like holy shit this is amazing i want to create like big sculptures and stuff like that the crazy thing is dude and this is i explained it to him i never understood how a lot of these shapes were created in in metal it didn't make sense to me like how do these guys get these like big bulbous areas at the end of a out of a, a little rod or something like that or how does how does a piece of metal change shapes so many different ways for like for example for railings like a lot of these really exquisite railings will have a piece of square stock that'll have collars over it and and different stacks of what what looks like stacks of steel meanwhile it's all one solid fucking bar of steel that was forged to shape using dyes and whatnot and stretching processes to create the thinner sections versus the thicker sections and stuff maybe there's forge welding involved in my mind i was always like oh this guy's taking like a big block welding it onto the end of the rod and then taking an angle grinder or a die grinder and grinding it to shape that i always that's i had that in my head for like 10 years after college dude i was like i don't get it i i want to create this this art and all that the only thing I can really understand is the scrap art stuff where you just grab random pieces and throw it all together to make something. And I just like I was like, no, that's not that's not me. That's not real art. I wanna like I wanna shape the steel, right? So yeah. Got into blacksmithing. Yeah, like also like you can see like Jacob Farms Forge, like Farm Forge, like the mm-hmm. dyes that he has to create like those bo- I don't know if you've ever seen some of the bottle openers, like the dragon bottle openers that he's done. Okay. Like he has like all those specific dyes just to make all these textures. It's amazing what he can do. But yeah, yeah like also like on my question there about how like how many years you've been doing it for, like the question there was like if you've ever been like a young blacksmith. Because I think the main thing with me is like you could say I'm not the most. I don't have the most business. You could say like I don't have like very like much of anything mm-hmm. so like i think like a lot of people kind of like you could say under s want to underestimate like like you know like for my age being 17 they do no they underestimate you dude i bet you they do yeah like yeah people are like oh like how old are you like i'm like i'm 17 oh oh and just kind of lose interest after that yeah no that, that that doesn't surprise me whatsoever at your age it takes a lot of work and dedication to prove yourself to people man and you know there's a few people out there that you can look up to in regards to that somebody like ethan hardy mark oh, yeah. wing 
those are guys that started when they were young uh and dude man just amazing blacksmiths at this time and the, the thing that's really set them for being who they are in the community is their age dude you've got that on your side right now being young like that being a young gun that's we always referred to that in in hockey i think is what it was was the young guns right you get the guys that are like 13 14 years old and you see that they're just they're good at hockey and here we are you know 17 18 years old we've missed our prospects to the nhl at this point these 13 14 year olds those are the young guns those are the guys that the nhl is going to be looking at right away and we would see it being 18 17 year olds like this guy's this guy's going somewhere if he puts his beans to the wall right so I think you can do it too, man. I think if you put your yeah. uh, put your pull your guns out and get them blazing, man, I think you're gonna go places, bud. You've got the right, you've got the right enthusiasm, and you've got the right side of things. Of you know, stay at home for now, gain your skills, grow your shop, grow you as a person, dude. And like this comes from Brian House. I can work for it, baby. You you've got to put in the work, man. If you Hard work and good luck. You will find that hard work will result in good luck. I mean, it's not a guaranteed thing for per se that, you know, just because I work hard, good luck's going to follow me. You're going to get shit's going to happen to you, just like everybody. Yeah. But those people that work hard have way more than the people that don't work hard, dude. And there's a reason for it. That hard work results in good things coming to you. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah, the main thing that I think for myself is that I struggle with is I don't know what to do. Like, I've always, like, I see, like, people, like, people say, well, create a website. That will probably be the most business. But then I talk to people like Paul and ask, like, do you think it's smart that I start a website? And he's like, honestly, the only reason that I ever have a website is so that I can show clients, like, hey, this is the kind of work that I've shown, like, Again, like, so that's kind of pointless having a website because I don't have that much of art work, you could say, like Paul does. So, like, yeah, I that's the main thing where I'm kind of stumped at right now is like, do what, how can I start selling to the general public? Because, like, if you do like this craft show here and there, you're only getting this small public, but if you do yep. something like, I don't know, like a big store, something like you could be reaching, but that's if the that's if the internet wants you, you could say. Yeah. So that's well, the main thing I'm kind of stumped at. If I can give you my input to that, um, there's a few things you can do. But like I said, from my point of view, Instagram, uh, TikTok, social platforms like that, uh, Facebook, all the different social medias, get on that stuff and make a name for yourself in that. There's, It might be that, you know, all we're all in the same crowd together. Like, for example... I've been working hard on the social, not hard, hard, but, you know, I've been putting in the effort for the social media thing. I've got over a thousand followers on both, both accounts that I've got going for abstract blacksmith and, and actually Forge side chat, I think is almost at 1500. Now we're sh just shy of 1500 followers, which is freaking amazing. Thank you everybody for following us. But I think that by growing those social media accounts and getting to know all the other people, 
not only is that growing a name for myself, but it's creating a like a community that I have to surround myself with of people that I can learn from, people that I can ask questions to, people that will ask questions to me that sometimes those questions that get asked to me help me learn too because you know maybe I don't know the answer perfectly and I want to answer them so I have to do a little bit of finite research just to give them the what I believe is a proper answer not not a half-ass answer that I would have just pulled up pulled out of nowhere type thing but the social media thing is is one huge place to start growing yourself and it's so easy dude that's the thing about the social media thing that that's why I say go to go to that and start off there it's just easy man start following all the other blacksmiths don't worry about how many people you're following I heard this before on on knife talk they were like oh don't follow more than 200 people because then your feed gets flooded with stuff that blah 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 fuck that man support your brother your brothers and your sisters follow as many people as you want to follow i i personally do try to keep it a little bit down on the abstract blacksmith side so that i'm not following a bunch of knife makers too many knife makers because i want to see artist stuff on, on that side the forge side oh, yeah. chat i follow everybody on forge side chat that i can that's into blacksmithing into art glass even even leather guys i follow on forge side chat because i'm like support number one number two learn and number three grow like that's they all it all all goes together right second second thing i would recommend etsy have an etsy page Everybody that I talk to that's selling things, it's Etsy that really gets them going, dude. There's a couple things that you have to learn about Etsy before you decide to really 100% it. So it takes a little bit of research, understanding what the do's and, and don'ts are about Etsy. But it's, from what my understanding, that is, that's a golden ticket to making sales. The other thing is that I kind of, I see this in other people and I, I've seen it in myself. You want to make sales and you're like, oh, I, you know, how do I get the business? What is it you're selling? Do you have 20 of those items in stock already? Do you have 10 of those items in stock even? It's pretty hard to step up to Etsy and make a post about having leaf chain, leaf, leaf keychains, for example, for sale if you're making them as your sales come in right if you go onto etsy and you post that you've got leaf keychain holders and you've got 10 of them and you can post a picture that you've got 10 of them or whatever you know in a little pile that little pile of 10 of them solidifies the fact that you are for sure making these and you're into making that and it's not like a panic for you that you're getting an order that, oh, I've got to run to the shop and make this now. No, you've got this stuff ready to go. Derek Melton, dude. Fuck, get on board with Derek Melton if you can. He knows his business game so damn well. And he's a good dude to talk to. You got questions? Reach out to him, man. He's always been super awesome with me. I have a lot of respect for that guy. He knows how to fucking work for it, dude. He worked. He has a full time job. Comes home from his full time job and pumps stuff out of his shop. But he's got a set of like th- this is what he makes, right? He does 
fire pokers. He does stake churners. He does forks from spikes and stuff like that. He's really big on the rail spike game. But he's that's that's the thing is he's got what he makes down path and he doesn't deviate from that very little anyways if he's got a new product that he's bringing out number one he does product testing and reviewing first on his own to ensure that the product is good and robust and worth selling and then he goes into production of of making the item waits till he has a small bucket of them and then posts the item for sale yeah then as if i'm right then like, because that's the main thing with me is, like, I could imagine making, like, a bucket load of, like, the small items, like, the steak turners and all that. But, like, when you have multi-hundred dollar items, it's kind of, like, I don't want to be, like, spending all that money for something that could be sitting in the corner of a shop that will never sell. You could say, like, have just, like, when one order for, like, five of them comes in, then just make that. But that could be my own personal decision. I don't know. You I'm know always what? open to changes. I- I I totally understand where you're coming from. And I had this thought process not that long ago, actually. Think about a place like Cloverdale Forge. I don't know if you've ever seen them at any of the markets before and how they've got their items out. Or if you've ever followed Matt Jenkins and, and the amount of stuff that he makes. But it becomes painfully obvious that that guy literally pumps the living crap out of his product. To the point where he's probably got buckets of certain items hidden in the corner of shop somewhere that he's forgotten he even has like a hundred bottle openers somewhere because he just is a machine that just produces because that's what you have to do to be fully successful at these farmer markets is you have to come in with a thousand more items than will ever sell. But if you don't have those thousand items that will, you know, more than will sell, people are just going to skip over you because oh, he's small, puny game, whatever. When they when they come to your your booth and they see you've got ten fire pokers to choose from versus two, that makes a big fucking difference, man. Yeah, yeah. And having going to a farmer's market and putting ten on display but having another 20 hidden in the back of your truck so that as one gets purchased, you put another one back on display, keeping your display nice and full. It just, it looks good, dude. And it, and it brings in the people, you know, you got a, you got a small table that's got like two bottle openers on it, a real spike knife, and maybe a couple other trinkets here and there. People look at it and they kind of hum and haw and maybe they'll buy one thing from you. But when you, Take a close look at how Cloverdale Forge sets up their farmer's market if you ever get a chance, man, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You've got you've got to really pump your product. And it's something that I've told myself too. Like, you know, people, even Grayson Fair, look at how Grayson Fair sells his rail spike knives. He doesn't yeah. have two rail spike knives on the table. He'll have like 20 of them on the table. And then he probably has a box with 100 of them hidden under the table. The way you got to do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Just find something that you find a little bit of enjoyment in making and just start pumping them out. And even if you have to give some away to start getting your name out there, that is another huge way to help grow yourself. And the spike knives are cheap. 
easy to make. Fucking pump out a bunch of spike knives. Start giving them out to your aunties and your uncles, teachers, stuff like that. People that have have some reach too, you know? Like try to be selective on the people that you give these things out to that you know they're going to show other people this knife to help. Yeah, not some some random Joe. That's for sure, right? Yeah. You, your neighbor, you know, neighbors are a great thing. I, I've always loved my neighbors. I moved just a, about a year ago. I miss my old neighbors dearly. And like, those are the types of people that I should be giving items to so that they can show them off and they will show them off with pride because there was a connection there, right? Yeah. yeah that's That's about the advice I can give you on that one, man. But I think... I think you're going in the right direction with that. You, you know, you know what you need to do. You just need to freaking do it, dude. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What do you think? You gonna you gonna bang it out or what? Yeah. Then just trying to find the main thing for me is I'm just trying to find product that does sell for me. You could say. Yeah. One thing I do have taken for an idea is. I don't know if you ever saw. Did you ever see the video that, um, what's it? Got his name, Tim. If you did, you know about making all these sorts of bottle openers. Okay. Okay, he made one not long ago, and one actually really stood out to me that could be very easy to sell. I would think is basically it's um five eighths rod, five eighths rod, so it's not that big or so. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is you put a little, you put a loop on it, and then you just. Yeah put a, a tab at the end and then that's your bottle opener right yeah i saw that okay i think that is one of the a very good idea for a simple bottle opener that you could probably sell for like almost cheap because you can produce them very quickly but ask yourself this gregory who's using bottle openers what who's using bottle openers nowadays even all the craft beers that are coming out they're all canned like no one's using bottle. I've not. This is something I've asked myself. Who the hell is buying these bottle openers? For what? Nobody needs a bottle opener nowadays. It's kind of like a. Doesn't make sense to me that people are making make even selling bottle openers. It's one thing to make them. Go ahead and make them all you want. But who the heck is buying these things for what? You know. Nice. Nice. You say that. I guess. Yeah. Think about the things that. People, another one, S-hooks. Never understood why people buy S-hooks. Like, okay, I guess so, but it's not something that makes any sense. I wouldn't, I would never buy an S-hook. For what? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I could just take a, a piece of steel and bend it to the shape of an S and that's good enough for me. I don't need a fancy forged S-hook for $25, right? This doesn't make <laughs> any sense to me. But, you know. Stuff like knives, well, almost everybody wants a knife or can use a knife. So that's why I, it makes sense to me why the knife game is strong. The steak flipper, well, the barbecue game is strong. What's huge right now is forks, barbecue forks. That's exploded yeah. recently. Yeah, I do. Like, I do need to get some more practice in on the forks, you could say. Yeah. Like that. I do have uh, a bit of the turners down a little bit have those a bit down on making them and then what else 
um, yeah, and then getting some more practice on the forks, you could say. Well, you've got the power hammer, so you've got the ability to dry out those rail spikes a lot easier than a lot of other people have, man. Well, like even Grayson was talk, even Grayson was talking to me like, "Oh man, I wish I had that power hammer, cause then it would make my job a lot easier." Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Doing stuff by hand is just, oh, especially a rail spike can become very tedious, man. I know. You want? There's another I guy know, you but... can <laughs> talk to, Yako, dude. Yako Van Bruenhorst. He is such a good dude, and I think you guys would have a good connection, man. He's actually from Morden area originally. He's out in Toronto area now, but he is a solid dude. He's an excellent knife maker, and he's got a ton of information. Sorry about that. My daughter just came to uh, hand me a picture that she drew that is just absolutely absolutely gorgeous. I don't know. She's... uh. She's gaining uh -huh. her gaining her art skills very well. It's been uh -huh. pretty awesome to watch her grow. Actually, yeah. Oh, hey, look at that. I've got another one right here from her. <laughs> My whole desk and is then, just draw city. And then, like, one thing that, like, I don't know, like, seeing, like, those, like, Paul has dominated the market pretty good for those veins, and that's the um, leg bolts that are square, the square leg bolts. Oh, uh, yeah, you can just take, like, a regular bolt and forge the head to a square? Yep, and then what I've seen, what I saw, like, him do is instead of, like, just forging them square, he'll then, like, taper the top corner to have it some look, and then mm -hmm. if you take a look, so I did the math to see, like, how much actually profitable. So if you're buying one of these leg bolts for, like, around 82 cents, for mm -hmm. 82 cents a leg bolt or how mu however much you're buying them, get the jigs you forge them and he's selling them for around five bucks a pop oh wow That's... and even like him like him he can do them in one heat if yep. i'm right he can do them in one heat There's i no can do them around two you if i get enough of a rhythm i can do them in two heats you'll you, you'll get them down to one heat if you keep on doing them dude guaranteed yeah That's... if i'm right i did one that actually looked acceptable in one heat that did look acceptable in one heat, but like, yeah, push those, yourself. To I know see that he's. Do in that's one a big heat, one man. that he sold, especially. That was a very big one that he sold in in when I was down there, and then yeah. also like, he it seems like he makes a lot of shelving brackets. Yeah, yeah, that's another and, thing that Cloverdale does a lot of too. And I've actually kind of been dipping my toes a bit into doing that. And I actually have jigs. They're somewhat jigs. They're like, it's like pieces of C, one piece of C channel that's all pre-drilled out and everything. That has all the holes pre-drilled for everything to go in place. And then basically just take that same exact piece of steel and drill the holes right where the other holes. So it's like a template almost. Yeah. It's like a metal template. Like a jig, for me yeah. to then, so then I can replicate those same jigs over again. Yeah, yeah, that's dude. Having a jig setup, if you're gonna be producing items, um, we had old soldier two toolworks on not that long ago that talks about his jig system that he uses for making his hold fast. It just it it you need to man if you're gonna get into the production of items you need to jig it out. Oh yes. 
Oh yeah, like, I don't know if I have a picture here of that one, because it, it would be a great representation of a jig, but I guess I don't. It was a picture of a coat, like almost like a, like a towel bar that I made, and like that, and I couldn't get the S down perfectly on both sides, so I was like, okay, let's just do this, make this S hook, then take pins, like metal pins almost, weld them to a plate, and then make your jig, and then just, then you can replicate the same design exactly. of a scroll, yep. and then do this all over. Yep. You look at anybody that does scrolls, they all use jigs, man. You're doing a lot yeah. of scrolls, yep. Especially of uh, Christ Centered Ironworks, he is a big time jig user. Yeah. Well, Jaco van Brunhorst that I told you about there before, his parents were blacksmiths and they did a lot of gates and railings and stuff. And that's that was their specialty was jigging stuff out so that they made sure everything was always the same and they could make a thousand of the exact same scroll because every fence panel would have like twenty scrolls in it that were all the same. And when you got to do a fence that consists of a hundred or you know twenty panels, that's twenty times twenty. Creates a lot of uh, a lot of inventory right there. If you got to do yeah. everyone the same, digging it out is the way to go for sure. Yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah. You know what? I uh, I haven't had supper yet, man. It's ten thirty so, on our end here, so it might be an idea for us to start packing it up uh, there, buddy. Eh? Yeah, totally. All right. Uh, not that I I'm I'm enjoying the conversation. As always, oh, yeah, totally. I always enjoy talking about blacksmithing, and you've been a great talk there, Gregory. So, uh, you know, well, oh, yeah, totally. I, I, I got to come out and meet you in person one of these days. I really look forward to coming and hanging out with you one day. You're you're nearby, so why not? And uh, oh yeah, you too. Yeah, the invitation's there for you, man. If you ever want to come by, if you're in Winnipeg, drop me a line. Let's hook up, bud. Oh yeah. yeah. Well then, then then probably be best to pack it up then. Let's if, do it, bud. Then. Yeah, you hey. know the. Uh, do you know how to do the Bob and Doug farewell? Um, what? The Bob Bob and Doug Mackenzie farewell. No, I don't. <laughs> oh no! Here we go, another episode. Ah, oh, we're letting everybody down. Uh, this is where I need Justin or Steve. Oh well. So <laughs> try to try to mimic what I do, but instead of a. Uh, at the end it's a coup at the end okay so i'm gonna do okay oh boy <laughs> no worries that's awesome dude i love it great we'll uh yeah catch up my friend thank you very much for the chat and uh yeah it was great yeah. Keep on that solid road, my man. Keep on working. Keep on grinding. Uh, some friends of mine would say keep on hustling and grinding, actually, is how they would say it. And some other friends would say work for it. And, uh, yeah. All the best, my man. Cheers, eh? Yeah.